there is now a way to contact the Wolf Connection podcast through our Instagram handle, the Wolf Connection Pod. And for comments and questions, send us an email to podcast at wolfconnection.org with your comments, questions, and guest ideas for Stephen and myself. You may hear your question answered on an upcoming podcast. Thank you for your support and howls to you all. Welcome to the Wolf Connection Podcast. I'm your host, John Calvin. Let's talk about some more. All right, so we got a four-person Zoom going on again, which we tend to do these once in a while, but two very important individuals who, with a very important conversation that we want to uh, get to today, they are both steering committee members of the Wild Livelihoods Business Coalition. They are Kara McGarry. She is the owner of In Our Nature Guiding Services and a biologist coming to us from Gardner, Montana, right near the north entrance of Yellowstone National Park, and Casey Anderson, who is the creative director of Vision Hawk Films, coming to us from Immigrant Montana. Thank you both for making the time and uh, making this happen. How are you both doing? Great. It's good to be here. Yeah, we appreciate the time. Um, talking about wolves and wild things, something that we're, we're both good at and excited to do. Yeah. Yeah, this is, yeah, this is something that was born out of uh, our, a person who I'm sure you guys have, are, have worked with in the past and that uh, works with us here at Wolf Connection, Leo Leckie. He posted about the the business coalition and coming off the heels of the wolf hunts in Montana, in Wyoming, and or the ones that are still going on, I guess, in Wyoming and Idaho. And really what we're trying to get is your both of your perspectives, because you are business owners in this in these areas, you know, dealing with wildlife, and this is your livelihood. And this is something that is affected by the legislation and things that have come down. Uh, in the last year or so. So we're going to go bounce back and forth between the two of you so we don't step on too many toes. But so um, I guess I'll start with Kara. So Kara, just describe what what is the Wild Livelihoods Business Coalition and and the mission of the organization? The purpose or the, the kind of composition that we are is a, a bunch of independent businesses. We're over 150 businesses near Northern Yellowstone. So Cook City, Silvergate, Gardner, Paradise Valley, where Casey lives, and a few businesses in Livingston. Lots of different kinds of businesses, um, tour operators like myself. There are ranchers, there are restaurants, um, there are a lot of accommodation owners, um, lots of different businesses. We're not a 501c3. We're just a group of volunteers. We don't deal with any money through this organization. And what we do is we look for ways that we can do better by our ecosystem, whether it's trout, water quality, elk, wolves. And we try to work work toward improvements where improvements can be made um, as businesses, because we recognize that without this intact ecosystem, Yellowstone's one of the largest, mostly intact ecosystems in the world, Um, certainly in, in North America. And if we don't look after it, while it sustains us, we might not get to keep living the lives that we live here and having the livelihoods that we have. That's that's a good uh, base to get us started. So, Casey, for you, what was the the draw to join? How did you get involved? And I'll ask Kara the same question once you're done. How did you? How was this formed? And what was the the pull for you to to get into this coalition? Well, on a personal level, yeah, I think the the draw was um, just being. You know, I'm always interested in coexistence conundrums. I'm a fifth generation Montanan. Um, I've grown up in in a lot of of situations where you know people are on both sides of the fence when it comes to a wildlife issue, um, and you know this this new wolf legislation that came through last year and and the way things were playing out, it was obviously a, it was a big problem. And you know, I have friends on both sides of the fence, and I I just wanted to get involved with something that I felt like was going to make a difference, was going to be able to, to to talk to everybody a little bit um in within this region and and keeping the conversation kind of on the ground here where i guess the problem is happening um amongst people that are directly affected by the problem um 
Yeah, that, that was the intrigue for me. I mean, I think that, again, we're coming to the table, just trying to find long-term solutions. And I felt like what this collection was doing was really taking a fresh new look at a way to maybe try to find a way to coexist. And maybe more importantly, for all of, all of us neighbors to get along and find common ground. Yeah, Kara, what about you? Was did you do you echo some of the things Casey said, or was there a different uh, way that you found yourself in? Um, well, I found myself engrossed in Wild Livelihoods Business Coalition because I helped found it. Um, it was born out of a conversation with another member, Jeff Reed, and um, we we touched on the way that, you know, we tried for for years to work with other businesses to accomplish common goals and and do right, do better by our ecosystem. Um, You know, the the wolf hunting issue was a major catalyst um, and and kind of increased the urgency of these conversations. Um, And he basically talked me into starting this whole thing. Um, so yeah, that's that where that's where it began. And the name came to me uh on a friend's uh old Adobe porch in in Colorado, Southern Colorado. Um I was trying to figure out, you know, something that seemed inclusive. And so that's that's how it arrived to me. Yeah, it's a very cool name. Um before I ask a, a wolf specific question, I want to ask maybe a more general historical question, pivoting off of Kara's first answer. Uh, I think it's, I mean, it seems easy to agree that Montana is is one of the most intact ecosystems in the world. Do either of you think, and I'll, I'll ask Kara first, but you can speak on, for the listeners, how did it end up that way? What, what does Montana do differently that makes that, that, that makes that so, that makes them different? Montana is really challenging. It's a challenging place to live. Um, and I think that the struggle is probably what makes it beautiful um, and makes it fulfilling. Um, I think it's just a hard place for a, a lot of humans to dominate the landscape. Um, I also think that we are really lucky to have all of these hydrothermal features that were really unique and, um, you know, ended up attracting national attention. Uh, well, the attention of a budding nation really, because Yellowstone was Yellowstone national park was established back in 1872, but, you know, it's only a, a piece of a much larger, greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And, you know, the people that have, have managed to hang on here have have had to learn how to like Casey says be a good neighbor of some sort um we we haven't certainly gotten it right all the time but the place has kind of beaten the importance into us <laughs> um and so this is one of the few places where at least from my perspective I I live in a system where I'm I'm not I'm not in control of everything that's going on um, I am still very much um, wary of the fact that I'm part of a food chain um, and I'm not completely separated from from the wildlife, the the weather, um, all, all the conditions that exist here. So I think maybe that's why. But Casey has a much longer family history than I do here. I'm, I'm you know, originally a flatlander from from Wyoming and then I've lived all over the place. So we'll probably have some really interesting insight there. Yeah, no, I do. Um, and I, I do agree with everything you're saying, Kara. Um, it is one of the most beautiful, hostile places on the planet. Um, in fact, I'm developing a, a series about it right now. I mean, it's just if you look at the Yellowstone ecosystem, if you look at Montana in general, um, since the moment you set foot on it, there is, and again, it's gorgeous. There's no doubt about it. It's a wild place. But there's a hundred ways to die every day. I mean, again, storms, weather, hypothermia, falling in hot springs, lightning strike, animal attack, avalanches. I mean, it, it is, it's a hostile place to live. Um, and those who came here and lived here um, in the, the recent couple hundred years, they had to be pretty tough. Um, 
And, you know, I, I can just, I can reflect back on something that my grandfather said, you know, it's, he was a cattle rancher, cattle rancher in Montana. And there's much better places to pick being to be a cattle rancher. Um, yeah, much easier. Yeah, much easier. Um, and he always said that, you know, it's like, if you're a rancher in Montana, you can't deal with wolves, you can't deal with grizzly bears, and you can't deal with, with negative 40 blizzards, then you should probably go cattle ranch in Nebraska. Um, so I think that, you know, it's, it's Montana's remained that ecosystem um, that is that we all are proud of because Montana is proud of it. Um, you know, there's an old saying that the, one of the, you know, the most important bits of habitat in the world is the human heart. And I think that reflects in this, this question you asked is that because we care, because we love this place, because we, we, we form things like Wild Livelihoods Coalition and we stick up for it, that's why it is the best place to live on the planet, because we want it to be. I also wanted to acknowledge, um, given what Casey and I both said you know, what in, incredible um, indigenous cultures um, thrived here for thousands of years before um, Casey's ancestors arrived and certainly before I arrived on the landscape. So I just wanted to, you know, acknowledge their presence as well and their, and their, their, their past, present and future importance in this ecosystem. I, I totally agree. I think there's a lot we can we can learn from them. I mean, I think that's a part of the, you know, having a conversation, obviously, like you said, tens of thousands of years of coexistence peacefully. Um, you know, there's a lot to learn there. Yeah, we we've I agree with you guys both. We've we've just had a couple of conversations recently with places in Michigan and Wisconsin where the tribal members are really a key focal point of both the ecosystem and the conservation aspect of that. Kara, is there a, a point where the, the indigenous peoples are involved in helping you with the coalition? Are they involved in some of the legislation? Are they trying to get their voices heard? Are they more in the background? I'm not too keen on where uh, the Montana indigenous uh, peoples stand on a lot of this stuff. I haven't read too much up on it. I'm I'm rather unfamiliar myself. Um, I'm really interested in learning more about that. Um, nothing that I have to report from Wild Livelihoods yet, but who knows? Maybe after this conversation, that will happen, and that would be awesome. No, we want to bring more people into the conversation, as always. Casey, as a fifth-generation Montanan, what are some of the feelings that come up for you when a lot of this legislation and these these quick moving um, pieces come through and they slam down on on some of the coexistence measures that you talk about in learning to live on the land when you have you know I'll dive into the wolf piece uh, right now is just with the with the legislation with the wolf hunts and the trapping and everything that started to happen and you have friends on either side, where does that put you? Uh, I, I mean, you're, you must be squarely in the middle of trying to combat things on both sides. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, my personal feeling is probably not a little less uh, from middle, but I'd like to put myself there and listen. And I think a lot of what you've seen in legislative uh, sessions in the, in the past was very reactive, um, you know, and short-sighted. You know, they they were doing what they they did, what they could do as quick as they could possible to benefit what they needed to benefit, you know, to, to create a situation that was going to benefit them. Um, you know, if again, again, I just and this will, I'll give you the argument from that side. But if you look out the window and something was trying to kill your livelihood and you had a rifle in your hand, you're going to go out and do whatever you can to protect your livelihood. And it's, it's that quick, reactive, short sightedness that we saw in the legis- legislative. There's not, there's no long-term thoughtfulness to this. You know, I think as you sit down and have conversations with people about this, um, and you do talk about the long-term, I, I, I think you'd be surprised how many, uh, again, from, from the, I would say the anti-wolf side come around we share more in common than we don't. Um, 
And as you start to explain science and you start to explain certain things to them and, and start to look into long term, I think a lot of them do start to come around. But this, I think this was just reactive. Um, and, again, and again, you don't have to agree with it, but I think it's important to understand it. And I think it's important to understand it because if you're going to have a, an engaging conversation that is going to result into some long-term solutions, having that understand, understanding is really important. Um, otherwise, you know what? They're not going to listen. <laughs> and, you know, and, and we, and we expect them to listen to us and as much as they expect us to listen to them. And I think that's a, it's a two-way street. Kara, do you, if you can go through, you know, what have you seen personally for you with a lot of the, the legislation that came down and how it affected maybe your own business or, or you personally, as you were walking through this last year or so? So I would say that, you know, this is this has been a very an unprecedentedly contentious winter um, in in the community of Gardner. Uh, and I'm getting a lot of feedback from our our past visitors and, and people who are thinking about coming in the future that they're not happy with the situation and they're not interested in spending their money in Montana. So I think there's a there's a reputation aspect um, locally, you know, there's, there's a lot of thoughts and feelings, um, and it's, it's contentious, it's divisive. And what I'm learning from the situation is how important it is for us to talk to people that we don't agree with on a certain issue, human to human. And remember that we're human beings and not use, um, you know, not use aggressive, um, rude, hurtful language or threats, um, not hide behind the screen of the internet or some other way of having anonymity. All that does is breed division and it makes it harder for people to live their lives around each other. Um, and so that's been a, you know, a major social aspect of this. To speak to the economic aspects, you know, there's the reputation con- component as a Montana business that people don't want to spend money with us. There's a component of, you know, having more days where I'm leading tours and we're not seeing wolves and people having, you know, that's what they came here for. And, um, you know, it is likely that the wolf population will rebound in Yellowstone from one intense harvest year like this. Um, but it remains to be seen. We're learning things. This is this has not happened before. So um, that's my speculation. Um, certainly if we keep doing this year after year, it's gonna have major, major implications, particularly for our winter economy. People, come to Yellowstone and they stay in hotels and they eat in restaurants and they hire guides in the winter primarily to go look at wolves. That's the big draw card. And so it's a unique attribute for our community in Montana. And I think it's really important to consider that um, that economic component when state decision makers are are forming their rules. I also think that Yellowstone is as an as a relatively intact ecosystem, you know, we have all of the wildlife species that were here um, in 1800 and prior and very few that weren't. And they have complex interactions with each other. And we have an opportunity to study that in Yellowstone that's totally unique. And we can ask questions, ask research questions like, what is the predator-prey relationships effect on chronic wasting disease and all sorts of things. And so I think preserving the integrity of those relationships in Yellowstone is really important. And this last hunting season with all the wolf killing that happened on the edge of the park certainly made a big change in in the integrity of that system that study system 
more specifically, what what industries are and this was going to be my next question, so you, you kind of you kind of touched on it there, but more specifically, what industries are already really suffering from the legislation of the last year? What are, and, and maybe what are the overriding methods that, that you or, or your affiliated businesses are enacting to avoid the, the real downsides of, of this loss of what would consider maybe the largest draw to Yellowstone? So I think guiding businesses, um, uh, you know, that's, that's a direct thing. We have clients that have said, hey, I was planning to come and spend X number of days with you, and now I'm not going to. So that's just a direct loss. Um, there's not really much that we can do to, to mitigate that other than, um, you know, hope that somebody else decides to book um, and also do exactly what we're doing, which is which is saying like, hey, uh, we we are stakeholders and we have a position about this and we want to talk about it respectfully. Um, and so that's what we've been working on with commissioners um, we've had a few really helpful meetings, um, all the commissioners that I've spoken to so far, which, which is only a handful of them, they're, you know, they're, they're people and they're, um, you know, they're not, I, I, yeah, they're, they're respectable people. Casey, to your end, when you're making film and maybe are you able to hit a different perspective for people as opposed to, like you say, a lot of these things happen in conversation where Kara is going and speaking to commissioners and things like that. Do you find going through the lens and through video and through audio, do you find that you hit, you drive things home a little bit in a different way that people can see as opposed to just having that conversation one-on-one? I think I can understand your question. Um, and through film, through being a filmmaker, I guess there's a perspective that I can bring to those conversations. Um, and at some level, I mean, I can, you know, I'm essentially a hunter without a gun. You know, I'm out there in the landscape tracking and watching the landscape and learning from it without a gun. And I, so I can talk shop with the greatest hunters, you know, or, you know, we're often tracking wolves, but just in different reasons. Um, I think one other thing that I can bring to the table, I mean, I've been doing this in this ecosystem for almost 30 years. Um, and in fact, I guess the statute of limitations is up now, so I don't think I get in trouble. But one of the first projects I ever worked on when I was 19 years old or somewhere around there was carrying a big heavy backpack for a Los Angeles producer and sneaking, sneaking around down onto one of the holding pins and shooting some long lens of the wolves in the holding pins before they were released. So I've watched over the, you know, sort of a lifetime, I've watched the impact of these wolves on this ecosystem. And it's safe to say, and everybody can agree on this, is that the ecosystem has never been so vibrant. And I think that, you know, whether you're a, a photographer, a guide, a rancher, a outfitter, everybody can agree that they're, you know, we're seeing more critters than we ever have. And that this ecosystem is, feels as, health, as healthy as it ever has. So I think just having those common conversations and talking about it, having a little bit of history and be able to, you know, talk about, Hey, you remember how it used to be and how it is now. Uh, and to be able to have a valid argument with a lot of the, the naysayers, um, I think it's helpful. And then from a, from a film standpoint, I think, you know, just a storytelling standpoint, um, I can show that I can show that progress. I can show how it used to be. I can, I can show people how it is now and give them something visual, something that they can grab onto that makes sense, maybe that they will understand. What, 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 makes, a, what makes a compelling film, in, in, in your mind, in this context, when you're trying to convey an important message about wildlife, what, what markers are you trying to hit? What, what do you want to see in that final result that, that lets at least you know, and I know this is hard to predict when you're creating anything, but what are the, what are the things you're looking for that, that give you the confidence that this is going to be a, con- a compelling way to share this type of information and this is going to, this could potentially make an impact. I, I think it's connection. You know, it's any story of, if a person can see themselves within the story, if they can have some empathy to whether it's an animal or to another human being, um, those are always the biggest connections. Those are the, those are how you can move people's hearts and minds. Um, so, you know, I'm always looking, you know, anymore, you're looking for individual stories, you know, whether 
it's a human or it's an animal. You know, it's not just of the broad stroke of the brush documentaries. They're talking about wolves as a species. It's talking about a very specific wolf that's going on a very specific journey and has its trial and tribulations. And, and you fall in love with that animal. And I think, you know, those are the stories I'm looking for. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not much for preaching to the choir. I like to, to, to shake things up a little bit. You know, I, I like to do things where I, I, I will make the, the cowboy see himself in the grizzly bear um, and then fall in love with it. Those are the kind of films I'm looking for. And in fact, I'm just giving you a little anecdotal thing kind of the, that displays that is that I was talking to a rancher once and he was saying, you know, it's hard enough out here at work. And I, you know, I, I don't do anything all winter long. I get up in the spring, you know, and the weather's terrible. And I'm, you know, from spring all the way till fall, I'm doing everything I, yeah, everything I can. And those short period of time to get, to get it done. You know, and I just looked at him and said, oh, you just like a bear. And he stopped and just looked at me and he thought about it for a long time. And he goes, looks at me and goes, Casey, yep, I'm just like a bear. And I said, that's, that's what I want right there. That's a good story. That's how you connect. Are you saying that there, there has been a shift that you've noticed in wildlife filming that, that maybe, that maybe took the, the focus from, from species level documentaries to, to specific individuals? Does that seem like that's been a trend? It's certainly a trend. And I think also the, yeah. the importance of um, including the human species within that story is also really important. You know, and I think that those are the things that I'm looking for. I'm not cropping out the roads. I'm not cropping out the fences anymore. You know, I, I'm not painting these pictures of Valhalla. I'm, I'm painting pictures of wolves living in people's backyards, wolves thriving out, thriving on ranches that ranchers allow them to be on. Um, those are the stories I'm interested in because people feel connected to that. And I think that's, you lose, you lose the connectivity when you, you don't include humans in those stories. Yeah, 100%. Kara, I know you wanted to piggyback, so go ahead. Yeah, so, you know, this is such a cool thing, what Casey was just saying, and and one of the things that is so valuable for a lot of our visitors and for me as a guide, frankly, um, is getting to observe individual animals and learning over time, uh, this individual wolf has this type of relationship typically when I see her interacting with coyotes or this particular grizzly bear likes to mingle with and apparently play with wolves. You know, it's things that these animals are not reading the textbooks, right? And so they're constantly teaching us. And as we get a chance to observe them as individuals, we learn so much. Um, it blows my mind all the time. And, you know, it's hard not to relate. But that's also what's really unique about Yellowstone. It's such an open landscape. Um, and it's really unique thing about Casey's life and his work and my life and my work is we we actually get to live in that. And then you really start to relate to them as, as individuals, sometimes you, you see their struggle and you go, well, maybe I should be more accepting of mine because at least I don't have to like chase down my food. That's five times my size and hope that it doesn't kick me so hard that it breaks my jaw. Like, what am I complaining about? Um, but also this is, um, this is one of the only places I've lived where I really start to realize that um, I have a reciprocal relationship with my ecosystem and all, just as all the plants and animals do. We're all hopefully putting, we're, we're all definitely taking something out and hopefully we're putting something back in as well. So what's the thing, Kara, when you're giving a tour or, or you're guiding, what's the thing you're trying to give back in when you're guiding a group? Great question. Um, so when I'm guiding a group, a lot of times, you know, it's really about them and their experience. And I'm just trying to help them have it safely, um, help them understand, be there to answer questions when they have them and, and talk about, you know, the context of what we're looking at. Um, it's a really cool experience to get to, help people deepen whatever, develop and deepen whatever understanding they have of the natural world. 
and, and kind of be alongside them for that. Um, and that's really my goal. My, my purpose is just like, we can't expect people to care about something that they don't know about. And we can't expect them to have a good relationship with that thing if they don't understand it. Um, one of the things that keeps coming up for me this, this week is that predator and prey relationships. So for example, the, the relationship that wolves have with elk or with any of their other prey species and in other systems in Yellowstone, it's, it's, you know, wolves and wolves and elk really have a, a relationship, but wolves do eat other things as well. But we, it's easy for us to think about what the wolf is getting out of the relationship that it has with elk. It's harder for us to think about and understand what the elk is getting from the wolf, but it goes in a circle. They need each other. And that's a big misunderstanding. It's something that I'm still learning a ton about. I'm on a journey with, but there's a lot of other people that, that are struggling with that or, or, or haven't realized the flip side to that relationship as well. I try to get people connected with the nature experience in Yellowstone I want them to take that home to wherever they live. We all live in an ecosystem. Some of them are not as intact as either, as, as ours. Um, but even if you live in, in Singapore, you know, you, you still, there are still monkeys. There are still um, those huge trees full of epiphytes. And there's still interesting things to look at and learn from outside of yourself. And so that was a connection that I wanted to kind of, kind of go back to um, just because I think seeing an intact ecosystem really helps your brain fill in the pieces that, that may not remain wherever you live. And it makes being back home so much more interesting. And yeah, now you both, you both kind of mentioned this, this concept now. So it makes me wonder, you know, there there have been some conversations that I've heard where uh, people are communicating sort of their their displeasure with this with this new trend that you both mentioned of of treating animals like individuals and not not at the species level. And it seems it seems like it might be essential, really, based on what you're both saying to 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 getting the story across to to penetrating somebody's mind who who doesn't live around wolves and is not going to see them all the time for example just using wolves as an example but the argument it maybe triggers some kind of disproportionate amount of reaction to an animal dying or 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 something of that nature and that it it removes us from the species level effects of of what's really happening on a larger scale and it turns them into sort of like a like a reality show character in a way you know Kara, you've worked with many people as they're observing animals. How do you feel about that argument? Does that seem to, to ring true? And then I definitely want to um, ask Casey as well in, in the context of, of storytelling through film. So when I was studying my undergraduate, uh, I have a degree in biology, I actually have a master's degree in biology. And, and back when dinosaurs roamed the earth and I was an undergraduate, um, it was totally taboo to anthropomorphize animals. Um, you you just you didn't do it. We we couldn't know anything about the the biology of the inner workings of their minds. Well, neurobiology's done so much. I mean, it's advanced an incredible amount during my adult life. Um, and so now we actually have some tools to see that there are actually some consistencies about the way that their brains work and the way that their brains respond to certain stimuli, as with our brains. And so we can make some some more assessments, we can learn some things from that. I think also that the issue that a lot of people have with individualizing animals is that humans have a tendency to kind of try to turn them into like pets or domesticate them or something like that. And I don't think that's what Casey or I are doing. We're relating to them but we are totally separate. We, we don't want to be interfering with their day. We don't, you know, we're not invited to their house. They didn't call us up. We're separate. And I think that's maybe a subtle difference for a lot of people. Um, but we, we don't, we don't want to give people the impression that these animals are here for our entertainment or something like that. We're just trying to watch and learn from a distance and be respectful. 
Yeah, I agree. I agree with what Kara says. I think, you know, to, to answer a little bit more, back in the day, definitely, I think anthropomorphism in film, uh, people were, were really against it. They were against this individual thing, um, even more so recently. Now people are coming around to it. Um, you know, what I say to those people that um, want to keep that broad stroke of the brush kind of species thing going on and communicating and recruiting people to care about nature. I think uh, your old stick in the mud, get over it, evolve. Um, because the truth is, you know, they, it isn't, they are individuals. They are uh, recipes of all their experience of life that make up these individuals and those individuals make up to the species. And, you know, I, I use this analogy again that, um, I call it canine morphism. This is this is my argument to those people. Canine morphism. You know, we can look at a bear and think a bear is just a bear is a bear, a wolf is just a wolf is a wolf, but we all can relate to the animal, the dog. And every human can talk about, well, I had a dog that was really lazy, or I had this one dog who's really smart, this one dog that sat on the couch and farted all the time. You know, there's they all talk about these individual dogs with these very unique personalities. And they, you know, and no matter what walk of life you're from, you can have those conversations. So what you quickly realize is as you watch these animals, they are just like all those dogs that were mentioned in those conversations and they're all individual personalities. And I think nature then becomes much more beautiful and valuable when you realize it's a, a group of really cool individuals instead of just that broad stroke of bears, a bear is a bear. Um, yeah, I, I think it's. I think so. I think it's important to continue to showcase that. And let's be honest, you know, whether we call them, you know, there's the other argument, you know, you call them 1099 or if you call them fluffy, they don't care what their names are. They think all the names suck, um, you know. And, and truly, yeah, again, I they don't like us. <laughs> they really don't. You know, some bears are, and wolves are more tolerant of people than others, but in the end, they don't like us. Um, so I mean, it's just. Again, again, we I do think there's some danger in domesticating them uh, in their minds. People talking about, you know, this bear, that wolf, how much they like people or they like being around people and they have that weird connection. That starts to get a little bit dangerous. Um, but I do think we've got to look at these as these animals, individuals and start to have empathy for them in that way if we're going to keep them around. In the connection aspect of what we're talking about, about... Um you know, giving, like you said, like not domesticating, but saying like a bear is a bear, you know, and a wolf is a wolf. Do you find if you've had that conversation with a friend of yours or people who are maybe on an opposite side or, side or even on the same side of the wolf argument or the bear argument that people are more, when you, when you pose that to them, that they're more accepting of, yeah, wolves are just trying to live and bears are just trying to live and lions are trying to live and elk and the same thing as opposed to trying to wrap their head around, you know, monies and economics and, and things of that sort. Uh, yeah. So absolutely. And I use my observations about those individual things that I see in the field. I will bring them to the table of conversation and especially if it's relatable to the, to the human. And I think that I've, so I'll give you another example because that's the only thing I can do is to give, keep giving examples. Um, I was filming a mountain lion on a ranch that wasn't necessarily pro mountain lion. Um, and I, you know, I kept showing the footage of this female over and over to the people. And, you know, they, this became started to become an individual who was living on their ranch. And then as I started talking about some of the things that she was doing specifically, um, and I'll just give you an example. When she was hunting, she was using the sound of vehicles to mask her footfall during stalking the animals. So when this guy was going out to check his irrigation line on his four-wheeler, he may not even know the mountain lion was hunting, but he was directly involved in the success of the mountain lion's hunt because he was driving down the trail on his four-wheeler making a little bit of racket. Um, so now there's a connection there to an individual, to a neighbor that lives on the ranch and survives with him on this ranch. And now I watched him fall in love with that cat. And he went from letting houndsmen hunt cats on his ranch to not at all because of this cool cat that he had his connection to and actually was actually helping her hunt. And, you know, so, yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, when we, from a filmmaker's perspective, I'm always looking for that on a bigger level so we can connect bigger masses in the same way. 
So Cara, with the coalition and, and all this connection that we keep talking about, what's what are some of the tools that you guys are using to reach the general public as a, you know, obviously you're reaching the businesses you have over, would you say 150, I think, involved already. So are these the tools that you use? Are you trying to shift speech in any way? Um, now that we're out of the wolf hunt, at least in Montana, what are some of the the things that you guys are using to either attract more businesses in and to get broader public support? Yeah, so I think it's important to for me to share that Wild Livelihoods Business Coalition has only been around since November. So we're, we're fairly recent, um, despite a lot of past efforts by a lot of phenomenal people to, to bring, um, you know, different, different folks together in, in this ecosystem. So respectfully, um, that's finally culminated in this. Um, and right now, so we have a, we have a great website. It's wildlivelihoods.com. Uh, spelling challenge, the word wild livelihoods, <laughs> all one word. <laughs> um, and we also have a, um, a a business listing site. So one of the things that we heard from a lot of people uh, in response to the intense wolf hunting season and the intense um, killing of wolves on the edge of Yellowstone inside of the state of Montana was, um, you know, some people were saying, we're just not going to come there. Uh, like I shared with you earlier, the other thing that we heard from people was, Hey, you know what? I want to come, but I want to make sure that I'm supporting businesses who are supporting wolves that are taking a position on this. And so as we sign businesses up, we give them the option of being publicly listed, um, on our, on one of our website pages and we have a QR code that we put out on, on materials that are available to the public so that they can learn about, we, and we're trying to be as fact-based and pragmatic about what happened in the hunting season, take the emotion out of it and just say, hey, this is what happened. And if that's important to you and you would like to support businesses that um, would, would like to see these quotas restored, then here's who they are. And so that's kind of the buy-in. We also have a way for um, people, individuals who are non, non-businesses to sign up in support of wild livelihoods on our website. So people can sign up as either an individual or, um, or a business and they can be out of state or in state. It, it's, it's up to them. doesn't matter. Um, and then we have a page where they can provide feedback. Um, it, it's, it's kind of like leaving a a perspective or or a review almost about the the situation. Um, So that's kind of what's going on for now. There's, there's a lot of other moving parts, but um, that's the main public outreach. Um, So check us out on Facebook, Instagram, the website, the website has so much information. It's um, you can take a really deep dive in there. (laughs) It's awesome. Well, speaking of your website, actually, there we were just reading um, before you guys got out. We were just going over some of the the graphs on there, and you guys, you really should all go there and check out the. Um, let's see what page that's on. I think it's on the economic. There's an economic data tab um, on the wildlivelihoods.com. You guys should really go check that out. There are some really cool and very interesting graphs on there. But in terms of those graphs, in terms of the data that they illustrate, in summary, what picture do those those stats paint about, about Montana? I mean, I would say that in Montana, our recreational tourism industry it's really important. Um, I think statewide, it's on par with agriculture, and you know most people would associate Montana with ranching. Um, and and look, the two have a relationship, right? Ranchers are critically important for our visitors, right? Ranchers preserve the beautiful views. They're critically important for wildlife habitat of all sorts. Um, Ranches are, are much more wildlife friendly than condos or airports or, you know, other things that could be could be present. So, um, but it's, you know, tourism's a really important a part of Montana's economy. The one graph shows that our, um, 
our, the percentage of our GDP that comes from tourism is higher than in any other state. I was surprised to find that we we're higher than or than um, I'm sorry than Hawaii, um, but that, you know I didn't make <laughs> right. up the numbers. <laughs> so is, is Yellowstone kind of the overriding factor contributing to why Montana is number one um, by such a large margin in terms of outdoor recreation contributions, or you know over Wyoming, Alaska, Colorado, et cetera, places you'd think might be might be closer. Are there are there other really dominant trends other than than Yellowstone that that make it so highly ranked um, in comparison to those other states uh, where outdoor activity is is still very popular, still prominent? Yeah, I think um, you know the the tourism economy here is kind of complicated and it varies from area to area. But you know we got to remember that Glacier National Park is here and it's become super super popular. Um, there's a lot of fly fishing opportunities here. There's incredible hiking opportunities in the national parks and the national forests. Um, there's canoeing. There's you know okay we don't have the beach other than the river beach. Um, we don't have the ocean here, but we have a lot of other options for people to offer or people to enjoy rather. And I think, you know, to, to some extent, um, one of the things that's a really important component to our recreational tourism industry is the space. You know, we have around a million people that live in Montana. It's a pretty big place. Um, there's a lot of beautiful landscapes. So, you know, other states have the lower population density, but here it's it's actually landscape that you might want to spend time on and you might not see too many other people. Um, so when you need your elbow room or you need to take a digital detox and not be disturbed by your cell phone every 30 seconds, that's actually an option here. And it's it's not an option everywhere. Yeah, that's a vitally important point. I think that maybe people lose sight of is that if you're in a place that is flocked to with many tourists, I know there are probably some that say, oh, it's tourism season or there are more people here that, yeah. you know, aren't Montanans. But like you just beautifully described, these individuals or groups of people come from all over the world to see a place that, like you say, is relatively intact with all of the things that you could possibly pick out of a book and say, I read about this species and I can see that species more often than not. And I think that's such a vital piece to a lot of what Montana is. It's one piece of it, but it's, it's such a beautifully amazing place. And I know we have to get back there. We went there last year, um, actually a year ago this month, and we have to get back there. But before I let you go, because I know Kara is kind of squished on time, but Casey, can you give everybody your, uh, I have one question for each of you left, but Casey, just please tell everyone your website where people can see your awesome footage and, and give people an update about what's what's coming up next for you. Yeah, thanks for the, the opportunity to do a plug. Um, visionhawkfilms.com. So check, check out anything that I'm working on uh, film-wise. Some things I've already worked on, links to, projects that you can go watch um yeah i've got a lot of kind of experiential journey kind of films coming up where uh, fortunate for me because i'm get to be the guy on camera going to cool places but be going to alaska to nepal to patagonia um and i get to run around the world and see all these other wonderful places um but yeah i mean just and if you follow me on instagram grizzly guy um yeah at grizzly guy yeah uh i'll definitely keep people posted on any projects that are coming out and you can Follow me vicariously digitally. I love sharing, sharing everything with everybody. So that's, that's why I do it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You got me and me and Stephen followed. And Kara, please plug your your guiding service and, and where people, if they want to book a, a tour and, and go see the wild with you. So uh, my business is in our nature guiding services. And that's kind of, uh, you know, a double meaning. Like it's in... It is our nature because it's national public lands. And then also it's in our nature to go out and learn about things um, outside. Uh, the website is inournature.com and that has hyphens in between the words. So in-our-nature.com. Um, 
it's, we've got lots of exciting stuff going on, wildlife watching trips, hikes, backpacking trips, um, even night sky stuff. So, um, and I'll put in a plug for Week in the Wild, which is, we have uh, multi-day group trips this summer that are lots of local experts. Um, yeah, it's like summer <laughs> camp for adults. <laughs> so you just show up, we feed you, we give you a place to stay, we take you out and show you all the most amazing things in Yellowstone. Um, so that's that's kind of what's happening right now. I'm really excited about the summer. Um, and of course, you know, it, that's a good thing because winter is actually my favorite season and winter was a little bit less snowy this year than I wish it was. So, <laughs> so yeah, here we go. Awesome. Uh, so my last question for both of you. So I'll start with Kara to go on the fly. So when you hear the word wolf, what is the thing that comes to your mind? Am yeah. I allowed to howl? Do it. <laughs> She's got a good howl. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I think about. I just think about howling. Mm. Hearing a wolf howl, you don't just hear it. You also kind of... It's kind of like at, at a tenor, and I didn't do a very good job, but it's it you almost feel it a little bit. It's really cool. I love that. Casey, same for you. When you hear the word wolf, what is the thing that comes to your mind? Well, the first thing that came to my mind uh, definitely was a howl for some reason. <laughs> um, I don't know if I'm going to give you the howl. Um, it's a good, you know, it's a terrible answer. Um, but the other thing is, it is, I do immediately just think of contention. Because it and it's a terrible thing to to relate to that animal, but it is it is such something that draws so much passion and in so many different ways, and it, it's sad because there was a time that I think there was it was the opposite of that. I think the wolf represented uh, something we could see ourselves in nature, and now it's somehow it's gone away to be a little bit more of a contentious thing. Um, yeah, that was a long answer. But I couldn't agree with you more, Casey. That was my second answer. As we deal in the contention, I just would ask all the listeners who who do engage on behalf of wolves and who advocate, please um, take a deep breath. Remember that we're we're all we're all humans, and and try to be kind where you can, um, because kindness might win the fight. Absolutely, yeah. I, you both have said extremely poignant things today. And that's, you know, again, two, two wonderful people who are, are doing their damnedest to help these businesses, to help these, this species, to help all species, really, to make sure that Montana stays wild and, and these businesses continue to thrive. So, um, Karen McGarry, Casey Anderson, Thank you both for, again, the tight turnaround, for making the time and really sharing your wonderful stories with, with us and, and the entire community. So thank you guys for being here. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you guys. Thanks for doing this. I actually have been listening to your podcast for a while. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so That's awesome. I'm so excited to be on here. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, it was awesome. We have a fan on the podcast, Stephen. Yeah, it was awesome. Oh, that's so great. No, that's awesome. How's everybody out there? And we'll talk to you all next time. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Looking to support Wolf Connection or sponsor one of the wolves in our pack? Just go to wolfconnection.org, click on the Donate tab, and find out more information. 